Please let yourself sit and, and listen both physically comfortably and also not so much to listen to remember what's said um, because there's no quiz at the end. Um, but rather let yourself listen to be reminded of something that you already know. And if it resonates with what's true in you, wonderful. And if it doesn't, then you can pay attention and notice if there's something to learn or perhaps just something to let go of. I have been traveling quite a bit this year, had an amazing trip in Burma in the winter, and then I've just been on the East Coast and so forth. Um, it's good to be back, but I also am I'm not feeling completely well. Um, got some weird stuff going on. I was teaching on the East Coast and um, in, in a big retreat and fell over unconscious for about a minute or so, and that was very dramatic. Um, I woke up and looked up and there were about 10 doctors all peering down at me. Um, but other weird things going on of tremors and bodily kind of symptoms, numbness and things like that. So I've had a gazillion MRIs and CAT scans and tests and things like that, which don't show anything. One of the doctors I saw said, do you think maybe it's just Kundalini? You know? <laughs> So, so who knows? <laughs> so who knows? Yeah. Um, but uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm not quite regulated and still kind of waiting to find out. Um, and it's good to be home. And mostly I have some time now to be a bit quieter and, and uh, take some time not teaching. Um, but it's also really beautiful to be back in this space and um, together in this way. And what I'd like to do tonight um, is uh, return back to the basics, um, a talk that some of you who come regularly will have heard before, but at least one or two new stories for you, if you pay attention. Um, I like to come back to the basics when I return, because it seems so important. And here we come together to this beautiful um, spiritual or meditation center, not in order to learn something new, some great new practice or teaching, but much more fundamentally to come back to ourselves. Um, the world has a way of distancing us from ourselves. Uh, many of you have heard this in one of history's more unlikely acts of totalitarianism, the Chinese government has banned Buddhist monks in Tibet from reincarnating without government permission. <laughs> According to a statement issued last year by the State Administration for Religious Affairs, the law which went into effect last year strictly stipulates the procedures by which one is to reincarnate and is, quote, an important move to institutionalize management of reincarnation. Right? So that's one way of approaching the mystery of life. Right? But there's got to be another way, you know, the mystery of uncertainty. I mean, here I am and maybe I'm fine and this is, you know, things just come through and they don't even know what they are. Maybe I'm not. Um, but everything's uncertain in that way, actually, isn't it? We don't really know. 
Um, and to live uh, fully and to live in the presence of that mystery and, and uncertainty is what makes life become rich and connected and alive rather than contracted or fearful. Now, my teacher Ajahn Chah in the forest monasteries of Thailand explained the meditation practice that allows us to come into connection with life more deeply, the practice of mindfulness, compassion, all those things, in this simple way. He said, go to your little meditation hut and take your seat in the middle. It's as if there's one seat there and open the little door and windows and so forth and allow whatever wants to come in through the doors and windows to come and go as they will. Um, all the scenes, all the actors, all the temptations, all the movies, and so forth. And your only task is to stay in your seat, to take the one seat in the center of the world and let the whole dance of experience arise and pass and stay in your seat with your eyes open and your heart open. To sit, to come and meditate here or meditate at home as you do, is to connect with this earth, to sit halfway between heaven and earth like the Buddha under your own tree of enlightenment, to sense your right to be here as a child of this earth, born of this earth, incarnated in this human form, and to remember your capacity to awaken. Now the Buddha's teaching is called Sometimes it's called the lion's roar. And the Buddha was challenged as he taught um, on the night of his enlightenment and then by various ascetics and yogis who would come and see him and say, you know, you take good food in your bowl and people are taking good care of you and we do more intense ascetic practices and we do fiercer trainings and so forth. And you're kind of a, you know, middle path, lazy kind of guy or whatever. They were dismissive in various ways. At which point the Buddha would look back and say, I have done it all. I have stayed on the hot banks of the Ganges in the hottest month of the year with my eyes staring at the sun. I've eaten one grain of rice a day until I I touched my belly and I could feel my backbone. uh, Beds of nails, whatever ascetic practice that India has ever produced in these thousands of years, I have done all of that. I've seen it all and I've done it all. And now I have stopped. And in all the 10,000 universes, the heavens and hells, the joys and sorrows, the, 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 the spirits, all the dimensions of the world, I take the seat in the center of them all with the eyes open to see clearly the great heart of compassion and the space of freedom. And this is what I have found. Now what's true is that we all could make our lions roar in a certain way because we've all tried a lot of things as the Buddha did. I mean, he tried the palace and the pleasures before he did the ascetic practices. And you've tried it. You've tried consumerism. I know you have. You know, you tried money. You tried workshops and retreats, right? Okay. And therapy um, and travel and sex and drugs and rock and roll, probably. At least some of you anyway. I mean, 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, thank you. A, a cheer for that one. I remember on the front page of the Marin Independence Journal, a fad some decades ago, of people in Marin licking frogs. I don't know if anyone remembers this, but there's a, there's a substance that certain kinds of toads have on their skin that's a kind of psychedelic, and, you know, of course it's got translated into fairy tales and things like that. But all right, let's try licking frogs and see where that gets us, you know. Um, so many things that we have tried um, to find what? To find satisfaction, fulfillment, happiness. And then Joseph Campbell put it this way. He said, um, you climb the ladder only to discover it's against the wrong wall. Um, that we've set up all these possibilities of fulfilling ourselves, trying to be happy, and then finally we begin to realize that happiness doesn't come from the external circumstances. Yes, we need food and shelter and those kinds of things, which I think most of us have, but there is something else that we long for and that cannot be found by doing and having and collecting and being. Um, the poet Hafiz says, um, the mind is ever a tourist wanting to touch and buy new things, then toss them into an already filled closet. And you start to see the mind doing, giving you all the ideas. I mean, thoughts are endless. Pictures, desires, there's nothing wrong with desire. The only real problem with it is that once you fulfill it, what does it do? You got that and it says, well, that's okay, but how about that? That it doesn't have an end to it. And the stories your mind tells about how it's supposed to be and how it's going to be and if you could have an only if, only this way and that way. And we tend to believe it. The mind has no pride. It will make up any kind of story. Um, the poet John, well-known poet um, uh, John Ashbery was reading one night and um, a whole crowd of people and read some of his poems and a, a young person sitting kind of toward the front of the um, group of people listened quite avidly and then raised his hand and said, um, uh, Mr. Ashbery, is that a real poem or did you make that up? <laughs> but in fact, um, all you have to do is sit and close your eyes and you see the stories, the stories that in the end become the stories of conflict and war and racism and greed and the sufferings of the world and the stories of redemption and and love, all of that, the whole drama department is in there. But it's kind of unreliable. As Henry Miller said, I reached, it, it reached the heights of the absurd when I realized one day that all I had written about the man, I could just as well have written the opposite. Do you understand that we have a perspective, but it's only the moment's perspective. And what is it under the stories? From Clarissa Estes, she says, In mythos and fairy tales, deities and other great spirits test the hearts of humans by showing up in various forms that disguise their divinity. They show up in robes, in rags, silver sashes, or with muddy feet. They show up in scales made of rose petal, as a lime-yellow old woman, as a man who cannot speak, 
or as an animal who can. The great powers are testing us to see if humans have yet learned to recognize the sacred spirit in all its varying forms. And so it's not the stories, but what is the spirit underneath that animates life, that brings us here, that animates your life? So the Buddha's remedy in the midst of all of this is to take the seat, the one seat in the center of the world, neither grasping nor judging, but rather resting in the space of awareness and letting the heart of compassion open to see and sense and know the dance of life. Now, when I first began to teach years ago, um, I taught, as I had learned in various monasteries, how to work with attachment and compulsion and greed and aggression and laziness and confusion, the things that kind of cloud us so that we can free ourselves from those to see clearly, have a, a sense of connectedness with our own power and authenticity and inner well-being. But as I listened over the years in teaching, I found that underneath all those things, the grasping or the laziness or the aggression and so forth, um, was very often a kind of fear, that underneath all of that, and it was the fear our hearts are frightened to let go, to open, to be vulnerable in the way that we actually are vulnerable. The poet Rilke says, ultimately, it is upon your vulnerability that you depend. And that we depend. Because we're vulnerable to one another and to the atmosphere and the trees and what's in our rivers and to how you know the economic system and the body politic and the, the viruses that we transmit. We are vulnerable. And when we deny it or pretend it's not so, then we're really in trouble. So it boils down to a fear of letting go, of, of touching and being touched by life itself. To find the capacity to be present for the life that we are given. To take this seat in the midst of all things. And otherwise, we're in this small sense of self. It's called the body of fear that feels separate. To begin to meditate is like the story I tell of George Shaler, who was one of the most important primate biologists of the last century. He was the mentor of Diane Fossey. Many of you saw Gorillas in the Mist. Um, And when George Saylor first came back from his time in Africa studying gorillas, he came to a huge conference of biologists and presented the information about the clan structure of the gorilla families, the aunties and, and uncles, and who took care of the young, the young children, and who groomed whom, what was the power structure, and so forth, in ways that nobody had ever known before. And somebody raised their hand after he made this amazing presentation, said, Dr. Shaler, how could you have learned so much when we've been studying these gorillas, the European scientists have, for, for 200 years? Um, and no one learned anything like this. What, what did you do? And he said, it was simple. I didn't carry a gun. The previous generations had all feared these huge creatures, and so they went in with elephant guns, basically. Now, if you were a gorilla, and you saw a bunch of guys coming in with elephant guns, I mean, what would your response be, right? 
But because he didn't have a gun, it meant that he had to enter very respectfully, which gorillas feel. There's a whole protocol. I have a good friend primatologist who sits here. You lower your eyes, you kind of back in, you clear your throat, throat) and then the gorilla says, oh, you wanted to speak to me? I mean, there's a whole deal about how to communicate with gorillas. Um, The gorillas could feel his respect because he needed to be respectful to be safe. And eventually they let him sit, as Diane Fossey did in the midst, and see what is so. When you take your seat in meditation and you follow the foundations of mindfulness, which is the central Buddhist teachings of wakefulness, mindfulness of the breath and body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind, all its thoughts and images, and mindfulness of the dharma, of the whole laws that play out and make this life. When you do it as George Shaler did, neither fearing nor resisting, it doesn't mean fear won't arise, it will. Oh, you bow to that, this is fear. But when you are there, neither trying to get rid of experience nor grasping it, there comes the space of freedom within which you can know the breath and know thoughts and know feelings and find your peace in the midst of it all. Not the peace of resignation or withdrawal, but to sit as the Buddha and know that all things appear and disappear, like a star at dawn and a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, Um, that our life is made of rivers, the river of body sensations, always changing, the river of sense experiences, the river of perceptions, the way we see things moment to another, the river of feelings, the river of thoughts. You all know the river of thoughts. It's like that cartoon I like to talk about, which shows the car driving across the Utah desert and the roadside billboard that reads, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? (laughs) Meditation, okay? It's the mind secretes thoughts the way the salivary gland secretes saliva. And you sit and there's the river of thoughts and the river of feelings and the river of perceptions. The Buddha said what we are are these rivers and the consciousness which knows them. So as we sit, then the mystery of life becomes more apparent because we're not so involved in trying to manipulate and control it. And just the breath itself. I read somewhere, and I've got to do the math. I haven't, you know, I probably could do it in my head, but I've got to think about Avogadro's number and stuff like that. The, I, the question was, what is the likelihood that one of your breaths will contain one molecule of Julius Caesar's dying breath? And apparently it's 99 to 1 in favor of it, that every breath you take would have one molecule of Julius Caesar's dying breath. I haven't done the math yet, but there are a lot of molecules in the breath, so it's possible. Here we are, breathing each other's breath. You are, you know. I mean, that person seems to be sitting some distance from you, but you're actually interbreathing and interlistening and interfeeling, interfeeling the the mirror neurons of our bodies are all in sync with one another. It is so mysterious. How did you get in here in your incarnation? Really? I mean, where did you come from? And then we have this hole at one end which we stuff dead plants and animals regularly, you know, and glug them through the tube. And I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to have a physical body. So we take the seat 
in the center of the world, Ajahn Chah said, like sitting by a clear forest pool, quiet enough to see all the strange and wonderful rare animals, which is us, that come and go. To do this requires a kind of courage or respect. A small unit of American soldiers was walking along a street in Najaf, the holy city in Iraq, one of the holiest cities in 19, excuse me, in 2005, when hundreds of Iraqis poured out of the buildings on either side, fists waving, throats taut, they pressed in on the Americans who glanced at one another in terror. The Iraqis were shrieking, frantic with rage. This is it, I thought. A shot will come from somewhere. The Americans will open fire, and the world will witness again the My Lai massacre of the Iraq war. At that moment, an American officer stepped through the crowd, holding his rifle high over his head with the barrel pointed to the ground. Against the backdrop of the seething crowd, it was a striking gesture, almost biblical. Take a knee, the officer said, impassive behind sunglasses. The soldiers looked at him as if he was crazy. And then one after another, swaying in their bulky body armor and gear, they knelt before the boiling crowd and pointed their guns at the ground. The Iraqis fell silent and their anger subsided. The officer ordered his men to withdraw. I tracked down Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes after he was rotated home. I wanted to know who had taught him to tame a crowd by pointing his rifle muzzle down and having his men kneel. Who had prepared him for an angry crowd in an Arab country? And he explained, we can't fire warning shots. The problem is the next thing you do, you have to shoot real bullets. He said, it wasn't very complicated. I knew that the Iraqis felt that we as Americans were disrespecting their holy shrines and mosques. The obvious solution was a gesture of respect. Take a knee. To take the one seat in the midst of the world means to allow the sorrows and fear and anger and longing and love and beauty, to allow the 10,000 joys of your life, the unbearable beauty of life and and the great measure of sorrows, to allow them all to be present and to bow to them and say, yes, this is the tainted glory of humanity of this incarnation. And the fearlessness of it is not the fearlessness of fighting against it, as our lieutenant colonel could see, but it is to take a knee. And so when we come and sit in meditation, we start with our breath. And it's not to control the breath. Let the breath do what it wants. Sometimes it's deep. Sometimes it's shallow. There are all kinds of breath practices that are beautiful to do, but 
This isn't a training of the breath. This is a training of presence, sacred presence. You could say a presence to know this is a deep breath. This is a shallow breath. This is when the breath stops and it's very still. This is a tight breath. And as you do the breath, becomes the reflection of everything around you. Becomes like a mirror in the breath. You see all the other dance of life. Or you sit, as the Buddha suggests, after being aware of the breath, the soft animal breath of our body. And the breath opens the rest of the body. And the places you carry your tension show themselves. Here you're sitting quietly and your shoulders hurt because what? You're meditating? I don't think so. Because you're getting quiet and you can feel, you know, the last week or month or year or whatever of all the tension that's been building up. And finally your body says, remember me? Here I am. And what do you do? Usually we remove ourselves from those unpleasant experiences. But here the invitation of the Buddha is to take a seat, the one seat in the midst, and allow ourselves this embodied presence which gives birth to compassion for our humanity, gives birth to spaciousness and wisdom. Sakyung Mipam Rinpoche, Chogyam Trumpa's son, who's taught here in the past, writes, once I was staying with friends in Colorado. He's a very big horse person. He's a dressage rider and so forth, great horseman. And I took um, my favorite horse, one of them, Rocky, on a trail ride through the back country. I'd ridden Rocky before, mostly in the, arena, in the arena. He was very intelligent, but he didn't know how to walk a trail. This was a new situation. I was leading a small group, and that also made him nervous. I coaxed him over certain rocks and shifted my weight to indicate to him to go around certain others, but he kept stumbling. We came to a narrow place in the trail. On one side was a steep shale cliff, and on the other, a long drop into a river. Rocky stopped and waited for my direction. We both knew that one wrong move would plummet us into the river below. I guided him toward the gorge, subtly shifting my weight toward the high wall of shale. I thought that if he slipped, I could jump off and save myself. The moment I shifted, Rocky stopped cold and craned his head around to look at me. He knew exactly what I was doing. I could tell that he was shocked and hurt that I was planning to abandon him. The look in his eye said, you and me together, right? (laughs) Seeing how terrified he was, I shifted my weight back into the center of the saddle. He swung his head forward in relief and we negotiated the trail together with no problem. That's what it means to take the seat in the center of your body with its aches and pains and pleasures and tingling and joy. Some people find joy more difficult and rapture more difficult than than pain. To open to the life of the body with mindfulness. To open to the mind. And as you sit with the body, it will unravel, it will open, it will release. It's supposed to do that, clear itself. You sit with the mind and you see all of its stories, the, you know, the ways that it plans and remembers and, 
It also, there's a lot of rewriting going on in there. I don't know if you've noticed the scriptwriter in there, but goes back and rewrites how it happened or how it should have happened or maybe how you would have liked it to happen and so forth. I noticed that. I mean, when I was first in the Forest Monastery, I'd been working in the Peace Corps on medical teams in the Mekong River Valley doing work with malaria and typhoid, tropical diseases, and um, also worked in a leprosy project. And I was sitting in meditation in this forest monastery. And as I got more quiet, I began to notice well the tinglings and things in my body. And I began to notice that there were areas that I couldn't feel anything. It felt a little bit numb, especially hands and things. And um, at some point I got a little bit nervous because um, one of the first clinical signs of leprosy is to begin to feel numbness in parts of the skin. Actually, that's why lepers lose limbs and so forth, not from the leprosy, but because they can't feel anything and they, they burn or get, get hurt and then it gets infected. And so I'm sitting there and I can't feel this and I can't feel that. And then my mind goes, mm, maybe this is leprosy, right? I've been working with these lepers and all of a sudden, I'm calling my mother, I'm imagining, saying, Mom, I'm sorry, your son is a leper, he can never come home, you know. And I'll tell you, it just went wild in my mind. Um, and for three days, you know, I was there, okay, I'm going to live in this way, and all the, you know, all the kind of story that only the drama department can do so well. Finally, I got the nerve to talk to this senior monk. I was really new at meditation. And I said, do you ever meditate and, you know, feel parts of your body clearly and other parts you can't feel. He said, oh yeah, that happens all the time. Attention shifts, and, you know. And I went, oh, okay, I'm not a leper, you know, right? It's like, but that's just one story. And I don't know about you, but I've lived thousands of them. As Mark Twain said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened, right? <laughs> so you sit and you see the identities of mind and how things should be in the habit patterns and they're part of humanity, and you bow and say, this is the way the mind works. Thank you for your opinion. I appreciate that. But you rest in the heart in the space of awareness. Or you notice emotions. L- loneliness, grief. You sit quietly, and sometimes the unfinished business of the heart comes. The regrets that you have for you know, the way you wished things had been, or how it should have been. The tears. A man wrote to the IRS, I haven't been able to sleep knowing that I cheated on my taxes. Since I failed to fully disclose my earnings on my return, I am enclosing in cash $2,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. But what happens, quite genuinely, is that as we sit, what is unfinished shows itself. The tears that we haven't shed, the longing, the love, the connection we might wish to have with the world, all of those things, the the loneliness, and not that alone, but also the love of life and the joy and the, the gratitude, the whole dance of emotions. I have a list of 500 emotions, you know, and they all take their time on stage. Um, 
And the point in taking this one seat is not to distance ourselves from experience, but as the Buddha, to allow ourselves to be in the dance of life from, with compassion for our, our lives and, and with, with, with um, wisdom. This from a friend of mine who died recently of ovarian cancer. She writes, my days are short and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and the ease it brought, which it will at times, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting and every fearful fantasy you can imagine, and every pain and ache I sat through and every itch I didn't scratch was a training for kindness, a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now even as I face my death. So there's body and mind and feelings and then the dance of life around us, all the connection with the world that we are so much a part of. And even though we sit quietly and it seems like, you know, as we meditate that we disconnect ourselves from the world, we don't. Our very capacity to be present changes not only who we are, but the field of energy of the world. Albert Camus says, we all carry within us our places of exile, our crimes, our ravages. Our task is not to unleash them on the world. It is to transform them in ourselves and thus in others. So it turns out that it's a political act. Or James Baldwin, who I like to quote on this, He says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And so we place it on others. So to take your seat as a Buddha is not that complicated. It takes courage to take a knee, as the officer said, to take a a seat in the midst of things. And to keep your heart open takes courage. Um, it's the only game in town. Otherwise, you're lost, you're reactive, you're confused. Those will happen. That's part of our humanity. But to be free, and the Buddha bows to you and says, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, remember that freedom is possible for you. And so we take our seat and practice becoming the space of awareness that can just say, ah, this too, bow to whatever experience arises, big ones and small ones. There's only one world, writes Storm Jameson, the world pressing against you at this minute. All the rest is imaginary, you know. There's only one minute in which you are alive, the minute here and now. The only way to live is by accepting each minute as an unrepeatable miracle. And so to meditate, you begin to come more into the reality of the present, to rest in the present. It doesn't mean you can't plan or remember in appropriate ways, but instead of living our lives 95% of the attention being on what's going to happen and what happened, we rest in the reality of the present. And with this, 
then we can plan and remember appropriately, but we're here and now. And this is the place of freedom. Over and over to come back to the space of awareness. To do it, like George Shaler demonstrated, requires a compassionate heart. You can't be here without love and compassion and kindness or tenderness. It's too hard. Then the judgmental mind and the critical mind and the doubting mind and the wanting mind, they all take over. It's like in the Christian Desert Fathers, the story of this young monk who came to the abbot and said, Father Abbot, what should I do if I see one of the other young brothers falling asleep in our morning prayers? Should I, you know, tap him on the shoulder or pinch him a little bit, kind of wake him up? And the abbot said, oh, if one of the young brothers is falling asleep, you could just put his head in your lap and cradle it there for a time. How do we touch the measure of sorrows given to us? How do we touch the longings that we have? We've kept moving so long, trying to avoid, trying to get. And when we take this seat, we stop being afraid of the life we've been given. This is it. We stop the war, as Ajahn Chah said. We spent so long you know, at war with the way things are, trying to make them at war with things that were too short or too tall or too hot or too cold or right or wrong, all those battles. Finally, we step out of the battle. We say, here we are. I sit as the Buddha and see this dance that presents itself of life, that this, the rivers of life with a space of awareness and with a great heart of compassion. This too. George Washington Carver. How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday in life you will have been all of these. Over the years, while we've developed many programs here at Spirit Rock and at our other centers and programs for healthcare professionals and programs of creativity and arts and meditation, programs of informed citizenship, political responsibility as a part of the mandala of spiritual life, Underneath, we've kept the meditation and the retreats really simple. If you come on retreat here, it's mostly silence and sitting and walking and taking your seat in the midst of it all. Not because these other things aren't beautiful and sometimes we certainly work with them, but there's such a power to simply listening, to simply stopping and listening to 
your body, listening to your heart, listening to the one who knows the wisdom within you. Because you do know. It's not that someone has to teach you or tell you. You know that life is a dance that's all too short, that everything changes. You do know this. You know that too much clinging and attachment you know, makes you suffer. You know that wherever you look, whatever view or opinion you have is temporary. That there's always some other view, you know that, some other opinion. That perceptions change. And when you take the time to quiet the mind and open the heart, you see and sense from the, the, the truth, the Buddha nature within you sees this world. And it's wise and kind and fearless in a way that doesn't mean without fear, but rather some deep sense of trust. A kind of healing takes place because you're in the presence of everything that it makes up your life. There comes a kind of renewal in being present. So when we sit, um, I don't know, it's like taking refuge in what's true. Things are the way they are. And they take as long as they take and all those kind of um, that, that beautiful calligraphy from Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, it takes as long as it takes, you know, in case you hadn't noticed. Um, John invited his mother over for dinner. During the meal, his mother couldn't help notice how beautiful John's roommate was. She'd long been suspicious of a love relationship between John and his roommate. This only made her more curious. And over the course of the dinner, watching them interact, she really wondered what was going on between them. Reading his mother's thought, John volunteered, I know what you're thinking, but I assure you, Carrie and I are just roommates. A week later, Carrie came to John and said, you know, ever since your mom came to dinner, I've been unable to find that beautiful silver soup ladle. You don't suppose she did something with it, do you? I don't know, I'll email her. So he wrote, dear mom, I'm not saying you did anything with it, but the fact remains that the soup ladle has been missing ever since you came to dinner. Do you know anything about it? Later in the day, she got an email from his mother who said, dear son, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Carrie or that you don't, but the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the soup ladle by now. Love Mom. And the, the title of the little story is Don't Lie to Your Mother. Right? There is a kind of um, healing that comes when we see what's true, when we see the measure of sorrows and the measure of love, um, the amount of gratitude, the, the frustrations, all the things that make up our life, uh, the aging of our body, if that's you know really visible to us, the more so, um, the beauty of the summer sunlight. When we see the way things are and take our seat in the midst of it, and there comes some kind of renewal 
that's extraordinary when we're present. I mean, I remember being in the Cambodian refugee camp some many years ago, all these little bamboo huts and hundreds of thousands of refugees who fled the genocide in Cambodia, and people who'd been through just terrible destruction of their families, their temples, their villages, and be a little hut and part of what was left of a family. And in front of every hut, these huts were very close to each other. They were built by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. A little doorway, which was just a, a, a space with a cloth hanging over it. Um, but the path came in one little door. The hut was about arm's length wide and maybe twice that length long. There was a little square of maybe a yard or a yard and a half of ground where the path didn't go. And after about three months in the refugee camp, almost every hut had planted a garden. And in this garden, there were little bean plants and squash plants and things. People had to go with buckets to the pit well at the far end of the camp in the hot sun and stand in line for an hour and walk all the way down to the bottom of this huge pit and bring the water back and water their plants. And people whose lives were were lost and shattered, who'd lost everything. I mean, these are hard times in America and people are losing their homes and their jobs and it's very, very difficult. Um, these were people who'd lost incredible um, things. Um, and the strange thing was that there they were planting these seeds and tending their garden. And it is part of us. The spirit of renewal is so much in us when we stop and pay attention. If we let ourselves be with what's present, the, the, the spirit, we can, we can trust and face the difficulties that we have knowing that something new will be born out of it. It always happens. It's like the, the grass or the weeds that push its, their way through the cracks in the sidewalk. And I see it all the time in meditation when people come and they say, this thing is so intense, I have this anger or rage or fear that's so big. And when it's time and we work with it properly, I say, all right, well, let it open. Let's see what happens. Oh, it's enormous and it feels like I'm going to die. Okay, dying, dying. Let's see, name that too. What's going to happen? And as we allow space for our experience, it turns, something new gets born. It wants to be born in you because it's the nature of the river of life that is what we are. And so we take our seat and we absolutely have faith that we can face the difficulties of life and love anyway. That we can face the difficulties of life with the great heart of compassion. It is in you. That we have freedom no matter what happens. There's Aung San Suu Kyi under house arrest for 17 years, now in prison. There's Nelson Mandela, 27 years in Robben Island prison, walking out with such magnanimity and dignity and graciousness and courage and love to transform not only South Africa, but really the vision of the world. That is your choice too, O nobly born. You have within you this great heart of a Buddha. To sit is to know that what we most deeply long for is already here. If we gain something, it was here all along. If we lose something, it's hidden nearby, says the poet Ryokan, 
or uh, I guess it was Thoreau, who said, many men go fishing their whole lives without realizing it's not fish thereafter. What we seek is wholeness, is freedom, is to love and be loved. These are all really different facets of the same crystal of enlightenment, the same awakened consciousness. One facet is love, when we let ourselves feel that we are loved, but more than that, that we are love, that that's what we are. And another is peace, that we come to rest in ourselves. And another is great joy. And joy doesn't mean that there isn't sorrow, but it's the joy and the happiness in the midst of, and gratitude in the midst of the life we have. And another is deep compassion. And there are different dimensions of this awakened heart, or this awakened consciousness, that we know as surely as we know our own name. What we are looking for is what we are. And it's so mysterious. Thomas Merton writes, coming out of his monastery, there I was in Louisville, Kentucky, at the corner of 4th and Walnut Street, in the center of the shopping district, coming out of my monastery, and I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I was theirs, and that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of isolation and monastic holiness. The sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and joy, I started laughing as I walked down the street. I have the immense joy of being a member of a race in which the divine spirit becomes incarnate. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. We sit, we quiet the mind, we open the heart, and then we look around and say, wow, isn't this amazing? It is, you know, and um, it doesn't take that much. We know this. Now, a story I'm not supposed to tell, I guess, but I will. Once a long time ago, I was in Boston, um, and um, I had uh, taken some mushrooms (laughs) of a particular kind, along with the honey in the jar that they were all. Um, And I found myself lying out in the Boston Garden there, which has the swan boat and all these beautiful flowers and so forth. And I looked up, and one of the towers of the churches that are there around the Boston Garden is a big square tower, and at each corner um, is a big statue of Angel Gabriel with a with a horn blowing his horn. There are four angel Gabriels blowing, the, blowing their horn. And as I lay there meditating, <laughs> I could hear angel Gabriel blowing his horn. And it was the most beautiful music. And it was the music of the honking of the taxi cabs, you know, and the, the buses going by and the children's laughter. It was the music of life but it was coming out of Angel Gabriel's horn. It was the divine music of life that we are born into. And of course, one has those moments hiking in the mountains and making love with someone and you know, having a special meal and all those kinds of things or sitting in meditation. Meditation isn't to make those moments. It's really to allow yourself to be present so you see this truth that you already know 
and that it not only presents itself, but you can live from this place. It knows how to open. All you have to do is take your seat. It knows how to unfold, you know, like the flower petals. You don't have to pull the petals on the flower to get it to open. You just have to water it and put sunlight on it. And when you take the time to be quiet, to sit, to listen to your body and heart, to let what wants to open do so, it will unfold like a flower. And the tears will come, the ocean of tears, and the longing, and the love, and the beauty, and every other part. Um, Wendell Berry writes, the rain is free only in its falling. The clouds are free only to follow the wind. If you love the law, if you enter singing into the law, you will find rest. The law of life, of the Dharma, of the way things are. And it's trustworthy. Your body wants to open, your heart wants to open in your mind. And then you bring it as a gift to whomever you meet. This from Frank Ostaseski, a good friend who started the Zen Center Hospice Project. He writes about one day being with John, who had been in a waking coma. The day before his death, his face was full of tension, his head thrust far back, his muscles in his throat were tight and constricted, his breath a struggle. Clearly it was another stage of dying, but something to me seemed stuck. One famous teacher with experience in these things told me his spirit was trying to leave his body. I should touch the top of his head to show the way. A physician told me to increase his morphine to relax his breathing. A body worker told me to hold pressure points on his feet. I tried that nothing changed. Instinctively, I just wanted to wrap myself around him. I climbed into bed, cradled John in the curve of my arms. I remember rocking him back and forth. And as I did, I began to sing sweet lullabies to him. Not the nursery rhyme variety, but the kind you make up as you go along. Words and sounds mixing together randomly, not making sense. Love sounds, I call them. Every parent has done this for a sick or frightened child. And as I sang softly in his ear, kissed his forehead, my hands knew what to do, caressed his throat, stroked his face, and then an open hand circled his heart. We lost all sense of time. I could feel him slowly sink into me, my body cushioning what was left of his bony form. Eventually his throat began to relax, his head came forward, his eyes opened, they looked relieved. Afterward I wondered if I had done the right thing. Maybe I should have followed the teacher's advice had I pulled him back from some near-death state, stopped some process of release. I don't know really. I do know that the heart has to be soft before any of us can be free. So there is this beautiful wedding in this one seat of wisdom and compassion. The wisdom to see the world as it is and know that we can be free in its midst, wherever we are. And the deep compassion to touch the measure of life that's given to us, the joys and sorrows, 
to allow it to touch our own heart, the great heart of compassion that is in you. And as we do, joy opens, freedom opens, dignity comes, not in some great, you know, hold the flag up how special I am, but rather in a, in a quiet and beautiful and deep way. Um, and in the end, maybe, it's all that matters. Let's sit for just a few minutes. O nobly born, do not forget who you really are. Do not forget your own true nature, your Buddha nature. Rest in it. Trust it. It is your home. tonight, I would like us to do a very simple chant. One, one simple word repeated. Um, in India, when you meet someone, the most common greeting is to put your hands together and say namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. I see who you really are behind, behind, you know, the particular clothes and hair coloring and all those kind of things. I see who's in there. And the root of the word namaste in Sanskrit and Pali is the word namo, which means to bow to or pay respects. And so I'd like us to chant namo nine times. And as you do, you can feel what you're drawn to bow to. It might be just to your own presence for having sat in this seat your own one seat this evening to yourself, to someone around you, to uh, someone you love, to a place in the world that needs respect. Um, You can inwardly bow to that which you're called to do and then we'll go out into this beautiful almost summer evening. Na uh...
blessings of stillness and openness of mind and heart, a wise understanding as you go from here off to the myriad parts of the world. Thank you. Drive politely out there. There's lots of cars. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.